This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, these inflation numbers, it's like it might not even be a problem anymore, right? <laughs> well, it's become, it depends on your narrative. The, these, these numbers, it's like they perfectly fit two different narratives. Uh, and politics are now involved. It's a shame. Politics ruins everything. But basically, some people are out saying inflation is 0% which in a way it is if you look month over month. But it's also 8.5% if you look yeah, year over year. I was going to say it's not zero. Yeah. So I actually polled people. I said, what would you say U.S. inflation is in July? Zero or 8.5? Like two massively different numbers. It was almost 50-50. So I think it depends on, you know, I had it probably depends on where you fall politically. It also probably depends on whether you're a fan of the Fed or you hate the Fed. There's a lot of things that go into people presenting this number. There are some people middle of the road who do explain all that. They say, well, it's good that it didn't grow, but it's still a problem overall. And I think that's sort of the route I, I like to see or I like to take. But this number, the importance of this number isn't just the elections. It's also what the Fed will do. So, And what the Fed does just determines everything. Again, the Fed's like God, and we all have to live under this God. So we need to know what... God is up to. To help us make sense of, of what God is up to, you you came up with a person on Bloomberg Intelligence named Ira Jersey for us to yeah, speak to. He, he's got he's a direct chief, line to God. Yeah, <laughs> Direct line to God. He's, he's, yeah, the, he, he's the U.S. interest rate strategist in Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, yes. So, so why do we want to talk to Ira today? Uh, I have found him to be the smartest person on this topic. He also worked as an actual asset manager, so he's had to put money to work. Now he writes about it, but I like that he had to have skin in the game for many years. And so he he really is great at interpreting the Fed and, and, and how they will interpret different numbers, their balance sheet. There's a lot of things that go into, quote, just what's the Fed going to do? Um, and he's that's all he writes about. So I thought it'd be good to give his take on where we're going to go from here and sort of Fed-splain uh, all of the numbers that are coming out, uh, namely the inflation. Okay, so joining us is going to be Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence. He's also one of the hosts of the FIC Focus podcast by Bloomberg Intelligence. So if you like what he has to say this time, please go check out that podcast as well. This time on Trillions, Fedsplaining. Ira, welcome to Trillions. Thanks very much for having me. Okay, so we've got these inflation numbers. Maybe a little bit surprising because after it, you know, the numbers have just been on a tear. Maybe is plateauing now. How does that change 
the Fed's next move? Well, first, it was not completely unexpected that we'd have somewhat uh, slower inflation in July than we had in in June. Um, we were always expecting June to kind of be the peak in year on year inflation in particular. Um, so for the Fed, they're going to look past some of these numbers. For for one thing, it's only one number, right? So so we need a string of better numbers for the Federal Reserve not to remain relatively hawkish on hike interest rates. That's number one. And number two, um, when when you look into the details, right? So, so why was headline inflation zero month on month? Primarily because gas prices are down a lot. And then when you look under the hood and you look at a lot of the details of the numbers, so what we call core inflation, so that's excluding food and energy, that was still up pretty hefty and looks like it, it you know, on, on a on an annualized basis, still up almost four percent. So, and and on a year on year basis, still up almost six percent. So you're still looking at inflation trends in for most goods and services that are still rising very significantly, and um, and, and the Fed's still not going to like that. And I think that you're going to hear that from a, a lot of Fed speakers over the next six weeks or so before the next meeting. So. Um- you know, I, I have heard again. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. The Fed is would like to get two percent. What is the two percent? The year over year, like what? What, what would? What number is two percent, and how would they get there? Yeah. So, so the goal of the Federal Reserve is two percent year on year inflation for the headline number. Now, you know, if they hit. 2.3 or you know if it, if it's within the range and then they see core inflation that that ex food and energy is kind of at 2% they that would make them pretty happy um so so that's their goal and that's their stated objective the problem is, is that it's quite frankly, it's going to take years for them to get there. So the question is, do they remain um, in this inflation fighting mode until they get to two percent, or if you see this massive downtrend in inflation, will that make them, you know, stop hiking interest rates and maybe do some more dovish activity, especially if the rest of the economy looks like it's falling apart? So if you see unemployment going up and you see um, retail sales, for example, start to plummet very significantly, again, excluding gas, right? Because, you know, retail sales with gas in it is going to be down anyway, just because we're paying less at the pump. Um, So so that really is that number, Eric, that that you have to focus on when you're thinking about what is the Federal Reserve's next move is that um, it is going to be the trend in that headline number, but also that core number. So you really need to look at both. Well, okay, let me, okay, if it's year over year, and it was 9% in June, and now 8.5% in July, I guess my point is, we elevated that much in a year. Now, Mm -hmm. are they looking to undo the elevation, or just hang on for the next 10 months till (laughs) the elevated number goes up less than 2% from an already elevated number? Like, if we're, let's let's put this in weight terms, we weigh 200 pounds, uh, Nick Bajuli did this on Twitter. I thought it was a, a good metaphor. We now we weigh two hundred and twenty pounds, uh, and in July we gain no weight. We're still two twenty. Are are they are they going to look to go back down to two hundred, or just keep two twenty for the next eight months or ten months? Well, so so the the real goal is to get the growth rate lower. So it would be, <laughs> it the the weight example is not quite good because I'd be saying you know we went from two percent to to two or two, 200 pounds to 220. And now in the future, we only want to go up, uh, we only want to go up about four pounds a year. Right. And so, so I'm, I'm not sure that that analogy is, is quite, uh, I don't like that. I, that sounds, that sounds too real. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So, which, which, you know, may, may be true for some people, but, but the, the real goal is to, to kind of stop the, stop the increase. Right. So it's really the, but in other words, um, but that, that still accepts the fact that it has increased prices yeah. are up and that's, so in other words, we're, we're okay at this new normal. We just don't want it to grow anymore. Correct. So, so the, so, so the feds, the feds job here is to, um, slow the growth, not change the level, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. You, you, you know, it's okay. You don't want to go from, uh, the, the Fed's not going to go from 220 to 200, right? That that would be deflation or disinflation. That would be a whole different problem. We're going to be right. in the heavyweight category from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I'm going to use this on my wife because I did put on about 15 pounds during the pandemic, but I haven't gained any weight in about six months. I was going to do that inflation Jedi mind trick on her and be like, <laughs> I haven't gained any weight, zero. Good luck with that. She's going to go, okay. yes, you have. But I'm like, no, I'm talking okay. about in July. <laughs> uh, so, so Ira, if you're the Fed, you're Jay Powell, you're looking at this and your options. What what are you looking f- for going forward here in these next few weeks before this next rate decision that might, you know, change the course of what the next hike or non-hike looks like? Well, what's interesting about this cycle is normally you, you you get six weeks in between Federal Reserve meetings. So you kind of get one and a half months worth of data before the Fed has to make a decision. But this time's unusual because they're going to have uh, two months. They have eight weeks in between Fed meetings. And because of that, they're actually going to get two sets of data. So even though we got the July numbers for CPI and we'll get the July retail sales numbers um, in, in, you know, before the uh, the Jackson Hole Symposium where, where Jay Powell will speak and probably make a a pretty important policy address, they're going to get all the August numbers too before the next meeting. So they're going to have this whole huge set of data that they're going to have to consider. So if there's a reacceleration, like, you know, oil prices are up a little bit now compared to where they were um, when, when the, uh, when the, uh, the July number was calculated. So, so all of these things will probably see, um, you know, a, a, Maybe a, a slightly continued downtrend of of uh, headline inflation, but things like core inflation at five point nine percent, which is by the way a multi decade high, and we stayed there um, from June to July, so it's at the exact same number on a year on year basis. If that stays at those kind of levels, that's going to lead the Fed to say, okay, well, we think that inflation is going to be much stickier and at levels we don't like. So, so the Fed is going to be looking for significant. Uh, downtrends in the economy. Um, and, and there are some signs of that, of a slowing in the economy, but they, they haven't rolled over enough, I think, for the Federal Reserve to get dovish. So they're going to keep on reducing their balance sheet. Eric apl- uh, uh, alluded to that not so long ago. Um, and at the other uh, at the other side, they're also going to be um, continuing to hike interest rates, even if it's at a slower pace, right? The, the 75 basis point hikes that they've done the last couple of meetings probably won't be sustained. Um, but if they go 50 basis points in September and then 25 basis points thereafter, that wouldn't be a huge surprise to us. And just can you break down what happens when the Fed hikes? Let's say they hike 75 basis points. How does that action cause a reaction that helps inflation? Like, can you just take us through that chain of events and where that hike goes? Sure. So, so in the olden days, when we go back to the the pre nineteen seventy three, you know, when we're on the gold standard, the the Federal Reserve tried to slow the economy and increase the economy by changing the amount of money in the economy. So they they used to target monetary aggregates, what they called monetary aggregates. So M three, M two, and and some of these other money supply measures. Um, and so since that time, but but so since nineteen seventy three, they 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 
instead of targeting any particular stock of money, they basically say, we're going to make borrowing either more or less expensive. And they do that by raising the federal funds rate, which is the base rate that banks uh, that banks lend money to each other. So when the Fed funds rate goes up, that means that that bank borrowing costs go up that, and they pass that along to the consumer. And it just generally makes it more expensive um, for, for people to buy things on credit. And, um, and, and, and because it's, it's more difficult to buy things on credit because it's just more expensive to do so, um, that tends to slow economic activity. And that's, that certainly worked pretty, uh, pretty effectively over the last 40 years or so. Um, Paul Volcker, you know, uh, famously raised interest rates to 20% during the 19, uh, the, the early 1980s. And that had a significant effect on credit growth in the economy. Um, what, what's important now, and, and this is something that, that we've noted in some of our recent research is the, the the challenge I think for policymakers is that not only is inflation very high, but one of the reasons inflation is very high is because is that wages are going up. So so now you have a, a situation where the Fed is going to be hiking short-term interest rates to try and slow the economy, but in an environment where companies are willing to pay employees more money. Um, and, and that's something that you haven't seen since the 1970s. And I think that that's an important shift from the last 40 years versus, say, the 1970s when people had were in unions and they had automatic wage increases when CPI was um, what, what went up, they automatically had their wages increased. So you had this big wage spiral. You're seeing some similar activity today, um, which is uh, which is very unusual, particularly in a non-unionized workforce. Speaking of sort of historical precedents, one of the things that's interesting here, I saw a reference, I think, in John Author's uh, recent column about what the Fed got wrong in the 70s and sort of what, what Volcker, Volcker ended up having to correct. And that was sort of on, on the Burns watch, I think, right? And so one of the things I guess I would ask you just to make that, to bring it forward to now is what, what could the Fed potentially get wrong here that Jay Powell will be mindful of? Yeah, so so I think the the big danger here is that the Fed decides because we're having a mid cycle slowdown and the economy slows a little bit that they stop hiking interest rates and in doing so the economy then reaccelerates and you wind up with more persistent inflation, more persistent inflation expectations, and that forces the Federal Reserve to hike even more later. Um, so, so I think that that's a real danger. And when you, in, in all the work that that we've done, and that even that our colleagues at Bloomberg Economics with Anna Wong's team in the U.S. has has done, we all think that the Federal Reserve is probably going to have to hike more than what the market's currently pricing. So the market's pricing, you know, round numbers three and a half to three and a half percent. So another hundred basis points, one percent increase in in the Fed funds rate over the over the next six months or so. And then the market has has the Fed stopping. Um, but we think that the Fed is going to have to keep going into 2023 up to I think more like four and a quarter percent. The Bloomberg economics thinks five percent, but but still significantly more than what the market is pricing. And in part because if they don't do that, then if 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 in fact we're in the midst of a mid-cycle slowdown, which is not unusual after very large pickups in the economy, um, th then you wind up getting more entrenched inflation expectations. And that forces employees to ask for more money. Uh, wages go up, profits get crimped on the on the corporate uh, side, which you know we've already priced some of that in, into the uh, stock market for sure. 
but the, the you wind up getting getting inflation that that uh, has to be crimped down even harder and and more um so so the the worry is that you wind up with a you know an arthur burns situation where you stop hiking after a little while and then you have to hike even more later um and so so we need a volker and and i thought it was interesting a couple of meetings ago Jay Powell actually mentioned Volcker and said that, you know, they were very that that the Federal Reserve was very keen and appreciated what Volcker had to do back in the 1980s. And and I took that to mean that, like, they they recognize what happened back then and they don't want to repeat the same mistakes. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's talk about the, the the hiking and the impact on on bonds first. Um, so, uh, obviously, if the Fed hikes rates, interest rates go up. It basically means all the bonds that people hold are just worth less because you can now get bonds at a higher rate, right? So, what we've seen is just a, the bond ETFs and bond mutual funds are down. I mean, basically, everyone's down over the last twelve months. And in the mutual fund space, there's been a ton of outflows too. It's just pretty bad. We have seen a lot of flows into treasury ETFs all year. They basically about double their normal inflow takeage. Then sometimes you'll see people shift down the curve, um, but yet then they'll go back to short term. What do you, what's going on there? Um, as a money manager, what's your interpretation of all the flows into treasury ETFs this year? Yeah, I think part of that is just taking advantage of um, of higher yields. So when when interest rates were at zero and they were at zero, obviously for more than, more than a year, you didn't have a lot of of room to actually lose any money, right? So if you were buying, say, a bond mutual fund where when the ten year yield was at one percent or under one percent, 
then if you if interest rates only went up a couple of basis points, you'd start to lose money because the price of that bond would go down. Um, there's something we call duration, and um, where where it's basically the relationship between the price and and yield of a bond. Where um, and and durations were very high, meaning that if you get just a, a one or two basis point increase in in bond yields, you'd wind up with a large decrease in the price of the bond. And that's exactly what's happened over the course of this year in particular. But now that we've reached you know upwards of three percent on the ten year yield. Um, it makes it a little bit more attractive because you can actually get a coupon. You actually get interest payments of some, uh, you know, some amount. I mean, not that three percent is particularly high in historical standards for the last forty years, but it's still significantly more than you know the seventy-five basis points where, um, where where bonds were at the beginning of twenty twenty-one, right? So, um, so so you wind up with with an environment where it, it's maybe a little bit more attractive to buy bonds today than it has been recently. So Ira, this being an ETF podcast, just let's stick with uh, what your outlook and how that informs ETFs. And, you know, Eric specifically mentioned bonds there. I'm curious, um, you know, even on the equity side, like where, where do you, uh, when you think about this on a bigger macro level, what do people in the ETF world, what, what should they be mindful of here? Yeah, so so I think firstly, if if we are right and the Federal Reserve hikes a little bit more um, than the market's currently pricing, that you could still see negative returns for bonds over the next uh, six six to twelve months. Um, but but I don't think it's going to compare anything like we had over the the previous six months. So um, you know the the first half of 2020, uh, 2022 was has been absolutely abysmal for um, for Treasury securities and and bonds in general. Um, so it's uh, it's what what to look out for in particular is when the Fed stops, right? So when the Federal Reserve stops hiking interest rates, it's very likely that um, that shorter term securities are going to do a bit better than longer term securities. Now, if you if you're buying an ETF, typically they they don't weight securities by their risk profile by the duration that I talked about earlier, but what they do what, what so so in in total return terms. Um, short end securities could still maybe underperform longer term securities on a price basis, but it, but you could wind up with an environment like we have today where short term securities offer more yield, more interest um, over over the near term. So it really depends on what what your risk profile is, why you're buying bonds. Um, if you're buying bonds and and you're buying a bond fund, you know a, a TLT for example, or or one of those types of ETFs that that is long only and and tends to be longer term securities. They they at this point might be more of a hedge to your equity portfolio than they were when um, uh, when interest rates were basically at zero and and they didn't offer very much protection because even if the stock market went down ten percent the ten year yield wasn't going to go down so much that you were going to be able to make up for that um, that 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 downturn in, in your risk asset uh, portfolio. So 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 I think at this point we're going to have start to have more and more of a normal relationship um, where you know equities go up, you know bond bond prices go down, and then vice versa where where you can actually use bonds as a hedge again, which you couldn't do for a couple of years. Yeah, no, that was a big deal is that the 60 and the 40 were down. Although I was trying to explain to people that both went up for many years. Uh, I think part of the reason they both went up was the Fed was very accommodative. So it stands to reason if the Fed go, does a 180, uh, they would both go down for at least a little bit. Um, which has I, happened already this year, actually, Eric, right? So so you you have seen both stocks and bonds 
prices go down and have negative returns. And like you said, 60-40 was terrible. And, and and that's the that's the quantitative tightening trade right there. So well, when, when yeah, go yeah ahead. And, and let me just jump in on that quantitative tightening. So we just talked about the rates. Just let, let's just hand, like deal with the other side of this. The Fed also has a balance sheet, right? And you hear words like runoff. Uh, in the past, they were buying bonds, which was called quantitative easing. Now we're doing cute quantitative tightening. Can you just explain where we're at with that? Sure. So in, in August of, of 2022, the Federal Reserve is running off its balance sheet by uh, allowing maturing bonds not to um, not get reinvested into their portfolio. So that has the effect of shrinking the Fed's asset pool in, in their balance sheet. So both mortgage-backed securities and treasury securities are running off. Starting in September of this year, that will go up significantly where they're going to run off um, uh, up to $95 billion a month of their portfolio. Now, it'll never reach $95 billion, uh, primarily because mortgage-backed securities uh, run off at different um, at different speeds based on how many people prepay their mortgages. And, and with interest rates as high as they are, not as many people are prepaying their mortgages as they used to. There's not refinancings. People aren't moving as frequently as they used to. So so that that's running more at like $20 billion instead of the $35 billion cap that the Federal Reserve um, has put on. But they will run off $60 billion of treasury securities. Now, some people think that because they're running off $60 billion of treasury securities, that means that bond yields should be going higher. Well, uh, just because you have extra supply in, in, in the market. Um, I, I would say there's two parts to that. One is that the market's already anticipated that because we've known this now for six months. So the market's already adjusted for this additional supply. That's number one. Number two, you have another interesting dynamic, which has nothing to do with the Fed. It has to do with wages as uh, growing as strongly as they are. Tax receipts into the federal government have been much larger than most of us anticipated. And because of that, those higher tax receipts, the government, the government deficit is much lower than we thought it was going to be. So even though the Fed is running off the Treasury portfolio, um, they don't have to uh, sell those bonds to the market uh, or more bonds to the market. So you've actually had a situation where, um, where, where the supply dynamics in the Treasury market have been more, more even than you might have expected with uh, with the runoff of the Fed's portfolio, so um, th- there'll be a little bit of a bump when we get to uh, w- when we get to September and October, but it's not going to be very significant. In fact, uh, we just got information um, at the beginning of August that the Treasury Department cut the amount of Treasury bonds that are going to be issued every single month, um, and and they're, they're likely to to cut it just a little bit more over the next few months too, even with this extra supply coming from the uh, from the Federal Reserve's runoff. Uh, that is good to know, um, and I think let's just let's pivot here. And um, I think we did a we've covered the Fed. Uh, I think um, hopefully everybody has a better handle on what's what's going on and and where the Fed's uh, point of views is going to be. I want to do like a rapid fire with you uh, and just throw out some different type of bond ETFs and get your take on them. Um, again, I've always enjoyed talking to you and hearing your take when a new ETF comes out. Usually, it's interesting. Um, I want to start with tips. Um, you you you're not a fan of tip ETFs, but you are a fan of tips. Uh, explain why. <laughs> sure. Well, so so uh, tips are treasury inflation protected securities. These are these are bonds that um, if you if you were to buy an individual bond and hold it to maturity, you would get whatever the the yield was plus inflation. The problem is is that when you buy it in ETF form, um, you're you. you 
you don't hold to maturity and you take a lot of interest rate risk. So if you're looking for an inflation hedge, um, you're not going to get it because as interest rates go up, the price of a bond goes down. That's true for tips as well. Um, so as an inflation hedge, it's uh, tips are not very good. Now, as an alternative to say, if you were to go out and buy a tip fund instead of say TLT, um, that makes a lot of sense during a time when inflation is is going up and very high because then you have um, it, because your tip fund will probably outperform the bond fund. Um, but but that's not true. It's not a true inflation hedge. So if you buy tips as an inflation hedge, really what you have to do is hedge your interest rate exposure. And there's not too many funds that actually do that. Um, so there's one fund called um, uh, RINF that actually buys tips and then hedges your interest rate exposure. So you do capture most of the uh, most of the inflation increase. So, th so that's one way that if you are worried that inflation is going to remain very high for the longer term, that's a fund that you might consider. Um, but 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 you know buying tips a tip fund outright thinking it's an inflation hedge is just absolutely false and 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 that's why I don't love tips funds unless you want to buy them as an alternative to another bond fund in your portfolio um, and you have a good reason to do that. What about single bond exchange traded funds? This is a a relatively new phenomenon, uh, and they hold. Uh, 10-year, two-year, three-year treasury bonds, right, and bills. So that is like brand new, and I'm curious how that's going to play out. Um, and these tickers, Eric, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they've got U-T-E-N, uh, U-T-W-O, and then T-Bill, T-B-I-L. So what's your, what's your outlook for those? Yeah. So, so again, like it's, it's, they're more trading instruments than I think that they would be in terms of buy and hold. Um, but, but there is a certain advantage to them because if you, you can, you know, hone in on a particular part of the yield curve. So when, when we talk about managing money, you know, you have two choices, right? You can buy a bond or you can buy the market, right? So you can buy an index, like you can buy the Bloomberg treasury index, for example. And then obviously there's mutual funds out there that, that do that. And there's ETFs out there that, um, that, that have that mandate. But if you do that, you, you're buying the entire market from, you know, the, from one year treasuries all the way out to 30 year treasuries. So this allows you to say, okay, well, we think that that 10 year securities are going to do better than two year security. So I want to buy just the 10 year part of the curve. Um, and, and so a single, um, a single bond ETF would allow you to do that. Um, you know, is it, is it going to be something that's going to be used by most investors? I'm not sure that they make sense for most investors who, if you're going to buy a certain part of the curve, you'd be better off buying, say, this a seven to 10 year fund. And there's plenty of ETFs out there that are like intermediate term bond funds or short term bond funds. And I think those might make a little more sense than buying a single bond ETF uh, for, for a vast majority of investors. But for traders, if you have a specific reason to buy a, a particular part of the curve, then then a single bond ETF could make a lot of sense. Okay. What about uh, a new bond blocks is a new sort of upstart bond ETF company with some people who used to work at BlackRock and they're very smart people there. Um, we actually lost Bloomberg person went to work there as well. Um, XCCC. This is um, all triple C bonds in an ETF. This is to me interesting because up until now, the most triple C's you can get in a junk bond ETF was about, it held maybe 25% was triple C. This is a hundred. So it's going from like 25 to a hundred and HYG and J and K only hold about eight to 10%. So this is very, very huge, big step forward into the junkier side of junk. And I want to get your take on, on that. <laughs> 
So there's a couple of things. I mean, high yield in general and, and the lower rated you get. So like going down to triple C, which is very close to default rating. So these are very low rated bonds and, and not actually the sector that I cover currently, although I haven't in, in the in the distant past, uh, it was part of my job. Um, they they tend not to be very interest rate sensitive, right? So so they tend to trade more on price as opposed to yield. Um, you know, if the if the five year treasury or ten year treasury moves a lot, you might not see any movement in triple C bonds because they trade much more like equities. So buying a triple C bond is basically saying I don't think that the majority of companies within this um, within this portfolio are going to default. Right, are going to stop paying their their interest and and uh, principal payments. So, so triple C's are very low rated, tend to be very sensitive to to movements in, in the equity market and and in the underlying stocks of the companies that are um, that are in that portfolio. So, if you're going to buy that, just know that you're you're not really buying interest rates. You're you're more buying credit risk if you're uh, if you're going to buy an ETF like that. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETF risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Okay, I want to ask you about another one. This is one of the fastest growing bond ETFs on the market. It's called IUSB, and it's the um, iShares Core Total US Bond Market ETF. Traditionally, everybody's gone into BND and AGG, which track the quote AG, the aggregate bond index, which is a Bloomberg index, used to be Barclays, easily the most popular, right? A lot of fixed income managers have easily beaten the AG to a higher rate than equity managers can beat the S&P, and thus they have staved off the move to passive much better. But the AG is holds a lot of treasuries and doesn't hold any high yield international. And many of these managers go out and they buy high yield international. 
An IUSB holds a dose of high yield and international, and it's more bonds. And when you compare the fixed income integers to that, their beat rate gets more in line with the equity side. Thoughts on that as being your core instead of AGG? Um, I have to admit, I'm not as familiar with uh, with IUSB at all, but it seems to me like it, again, it would depend on what your... Um, what your goal was. I mean, I mean, anytime you hold a broad-based fixed income index, your your primary returns are going to come from rates, um, particularly investment grade indices, which which is what you're talking about here. So if you own AGG, like 85 to 90% of your return is going to come from what goes on in my market. The rest of it is going to come from credit risk or what's gone on in the mortgage market where mortgage spreads might widen or tighten a little bit because of supply and demand dynamics and, and the like. Um, so anytime that, that you own these, I, I think, you know, it's things like cost that are going to matter, you know, for, for sure. Um, and then also how much credit exposure do you want? Because I think that that, you know, there, there's a lot of people who in a period where say they think that risk assets are going to do better, they might want more credit exposure. So you want to look at how much corporate bonds and how much high yield is in any particular portfolio, you know, whether it's um, whether it's an ETF or, or a mutual fund. And, you, you know, so I think you really want to make sure that that your risk profile also isn't um, is isn't commingled, right? So, so if you're if if you're an investor who you know you have a lot of stocks and you have a lot of you know say small cap stocks, for example, you might not want necessarily a whole lot of high yield exposure because now you you have two asset classes that are very collinear um, and and that are, will move very similarly. So you you know a lot of times you buy bonds. Like why do you buy bonds? If you buy bonds because it's a hedge for your stock portfolio, then you know you don't want a whole lot of um, a whole lot of credit exposure compared to say treasuries or mortgages, which tend to have less uh, correlation in terms of uh, in terms of excess returns compared to the equity market. So um, you know so so I would say in in general that that's what you have to look at is just you know what what kind of risk profiles both of those portfolios are going to have regardless of of uh, of which product they are. Okay, Ira, at the top of this episode. Eric likened the Fed to God. So <laughs> does God exist? Well, as one of the as one of the priests, I have to say yes. Um, okay. So, All right. Yes. I, I was expecting that answer. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. if Am I going to get in trouble from the real God for that? Um, I, it's, I, I, so I'm guessing so. Let me just so. say to the real God, it's just a figure of speech. But I will say when it comes to markets, um, I'm just so blown away over the last 15 years in particular Almost everything is related to how the Fed will react. So bad news can be good and good news can be bad. And it's just really interesting of how much power this one service and the one person, particularly whoever is the Fed chair, has over the markets. I mean, the whole thing, it's like the sun. Maybe that's a better metaphor, but um, it's just what the, the, it, it's just something else. It's just uh, really um, more than I thought when I was in like college and stuff. I just didn't think the... Fed was this this omnipotent. They they always have been, Eric. And you know the the Federal Reserve. When we go back to you know, and I started my career in the early nineteen nineties, and we were worried, and we were very worried about the Federal Reserve um, 
you know, uh, hiking interest rates back then. And, and, you know, at one point they hiked interest rates, 75 basis points at one point, just like they did the last couple of meetings. And that was a bit of a surprise because people thought that they were only going to hike 50. Right. So, so you had this significant, uh, you've always had the federal reserve and, and the markets anticipating what will the federal reserve do? And then what effect will that then have on the economy and therefore the markets? And, and so, so the analysis of, financial markets in general almost has to start with the macroeconomy and then how the Federal Reserve is going to react to that. And then everything else stems from there and kind of, you know, spokes off the wheel that, you know, if the if the Federal Reserve's at kind of in the middle of the of that wheel, think about all the spokes that that come off from that and uh, and and how that affects the different parts of the economy and the different markets. Okay. So last question, Ira, we've got this Jackson Hole uh, uh, Fed annual meeting happening soon. You mentioned earlier that you would expect a big sort of policy presence or, or statement from, from Powell. Pretend you're Jay Powell and you have this forum. What, what are you going to put forward? Yeah. So at Jackson hole, I, I think Jay Powell will, um, uh, will probably basically stay the course and say, look, even though the CPI data is better and, and we're encouraged by the fact that we had, you know, 0% inflation month over month, um, we're still very concerned about core inflation measures. We still think the employ uh, the employment situation is very hot and wages are rising very quickly. And all of these things still point to us needing to be vigilant over inflation, which once he uses language like that, that's suggesting that they're still going to be in hiking mode. And I think that Jay Powell is is likely to take the opportunity to continue to say that. And, and I would agree with him in, in that regard. Um, but but again, like I, I think that he might even need to be, and, and if I were him, I would be even more forceful and say like, look, the market has it wrong. Just say it. The market thinks that we're only going to hike the th to three and a half percent. We're going more than that. And you've already had a lot of speakers since the July meeting say, we've already, you know, we, we think we're going to hike to 3.75 to 4% by year end. Well, you know, the market's still not pricing for that. So, and, and, and this would be his uh, big opportunity for, I think the Fed chair to be very explicit about the expectations of the committee as a whole and him in particular as to how, how much they're going to hike for the rest of the year and into 2023. Ira, last question for you. Do you have a favorite ETF ticker? Uh, the, you mean the actual ticker or, or the fund? <laughs> well, let's start with ticker, but you can, ticker. You can if, if, fun, if you prefer fun, that's okay too. Uh, yeah. Um, well, it's funny now that since my parents live in North Carolina, I, I was, I was thinking what Eric just said with y'all. Um, but the, uh, yeah, probably, probably tip. I think that that's a great, great ticker, like just in general, because it could actually have meant a lot of things. Like I was actually surprised that, you know, someone else didn't have some kind of ETF that automatically, um, you know, did things off of, you know, tips that, that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe equity analysts had or something like that. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, tip is a great ticker, I think. Ira Jersey, thanks so much for joining us on Trillions. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weppershow. He's at Eric Valchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Bye.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.